The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, as we were setting the table this week for another takeout meal, uh, our thoughts turned to table setting of the legislative variety. And on last week's episode of The Takeout, we talked about the longer view of some of the issues really on people's minds as we get through January and the rest of the spring. We've, we've got a few more issues to talk about today. Joining us this week from the Statehouse News Service are Colin Young, Matt Murphy, and Katie Lannon. Um, and really, let's just start with what cities want. Uh, in this season of agenda-setting speeches, we've been hearing from some of New England's other governors. We're getting ready to hear from Governor Baker later this month, but we've also been hearing from some mayors. And uh, we heard from Mayor Walsh in the state of the city this week um, on some of his priorities that will have echoes back here on Beacon Hill, where he was a legislator for 16 years. Uh, one of these, the real estate transfer fee, uh, also highlighted by Mayor Curtitoni in his uh, speech up in Somerville, Katie. And uh, you were there for the announcement of a new coalition at the State House this week, backing a fee on real estate transfers, um, where we also heard from City Councilor uh, Lydia Edwards. Um, what are the moving pieces here as they try yet again to get something like this across the finish line? Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting situation, is there's a, a handful of communities really in the in the Boston area, the metro Boston area, and, you know, Nantucket, the Cape and Islands region, places that are, are feeling even more of a pinch of the the housing crisis than elsewhere in the state, are, are looking at these fees on, on real estate transaction as a new way to generate money for affordable housing. And because the housing market varies so widely by community, they're all kind of looking at different approaches that make sense with their housing markets locally. So they're pushing for a, a local option bill, not a statewide policy, but something that would make it easier for them than every individual home rule petition hmm. needing to be approved by the legislature. Right. Um, and one of the big questions being, what would the threshold be to, to trigger uh, a transfer fee? Right. Because there's a lot of different ideas on this. Exactly. You know, and we've seen of the of the home rule petitions that have filed, there's a, a six hundred thousand dollar threshold in Concord. People are talking about two million dollars in Boston, and you know the whether or not you exempt some of that price, whether the buyer or the seller pays, they're all different. Um, the bill tries to capture everything. The bill that or the I guess it's not really filed as a bill yet. The compromise language that this new coalition is touting sets the the statewide median price as the threshold. But if communities wanted to set higher thresholds, they'd be able to. And I, I spoke to Rep. Dylan Fernandez, who's one of the the main architects of this proposal, who, you know, he said he expects that mostly you would see those higher thresholds, but they didn't want communities that don't have many million dollar homes on their market to be left out if they felt this was the right approach for them. Sure. Uh, Fernandez actually spoke to how the housing market impacts himself, said that, what, he lives in a, a glorified shack down in Falmouth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. He says he's paying uh, 1300 a month for a one bedroom and he, he considers himself one of the one of the lucky ones in his community. <laughs> Um, elsewhere in his district, the the median home price on Nantucket is over two million dollars. I think he said so. Wow, 
Katie, you mentioned uh, how this process works. If you're a local official and you have a priority you want to see get through for for your own city or town, it's this um, home rule petition process. What are some of the power dynamics or the pathways that these mayors or or managers try to use to get their priorities through? The the whole question of, of, of home rule petitions is really an interesting one in the way you have the kind of a mayor needing to put pressure or local officials needing to put pressure on the legislature because we do see you know the the smaller I guess you could say home rule petitions for things like liquor licenses charter amendments get through pretty often and pretty pretty regularly pretty and I don't want to say quickly but smoothly at least um, but some of these bigger ones that address policy issues they, they do tend to languish there and it, it creates an interesting kind of question for a, a local official of how much pressure do you want to put on the legislature and your your local lawmakers in particular when you still need them to be advocating for you in the budget process. And that's a, it's an interesting tension. Katie, Boston, I would imagine, is also fortunate in just the size of its um its uh, delegation up here on Beacon Hill. And we kind of saw that reflected in the whole debate around education funding, where ultimately the signing ceremony was held in a high school here in Boston with uh, the mayor joining them in center stage there. Well, uh, and an interesting thing to watch out for here is that a, it's a member of the Boston delegation who chairs the, the housing committee on the House side, Rep. Kevin Honan. Right, right. Good point. Now, uh, one of those state of the state speeches from elsewhere in New England that we've been uh, watching was Vermont Governor Phil Scott's speech uh, earlier this week. And he seemed to signal, uh, Matt, a disinclination to participating in that transportation climate initiative that we've been talking about. Um, This has been a thorny issue for Governor Baker. Um, he had a private caucus this week with House and Senate Republicans, and a lot of them have either been skeptical or opposed to TCI, these members of, of his own party. Is, is he going to be able to bring some of these folks around? Yeah, since December, when the TCI coalition that's really being led by the Baker administration, Secretary Theo Harides here in Massachusetts, came out in December with uh, their estimates for what the, the TCI initiative and Uh, Just to remind listeners, this is basically a cap and trade program that would uh, put a cap on uh, carbon emissions from vehicles and uh, require fuel suppliers to buy allowances and the states would use that money to invest in in clean transportation. But uh, the coalition estimates that this could add, depending on how aggressive they go, anywhere from 5 to 17 cents to the price of a gallon of gas. And ever since those numbers were floated, uh, we've seen uh, the erosion of this 12-state coalition start. And it happened kind of quickly with New Hampshire. Governor Chris Sununu immediately uh, blasted the expense that it would add to uh, taxpayers and to drivers in particular uh, and, and pulled New Hampshire out. Uh, and we've heard rumblings in Vermont, but you're right. Uh, Governor Phil Scott giving uh, his state of the state, an afternoon state of the state right. uh, on Thursday. Uh, and We're used to the evening speeches here in Massachusetts. Exactly. And he didn't address TCI directly, but 
he did uh, spend a good portion of his speech talking about everything that Vermont was doing to incentivize the transition to clean transportation, incentives for electric vehicles and uh, things of that nature. And then he said that incentives, not penalties, are going to be uh, what helps uh, uh, facilitate the transition to, to clean cars. Uh, it seemed to be a direct uh, hint at where he's thinking about TCI. And then he went on to talk about how Vermonters have to travel great distances out of necessity, not choice. And he doesn't think that any proposal that would add to their expenses is something that he would be interested in. Now, again, he didn't say specifically TCI, but you could kind of read between the lines. Why is Baker so gung-ho on this when so many other Republicans are against it? Yeah, I mean, Baker really sees this as uh, the best way to achieve both the state's uh, climate change goals as well as generate money uh, for transportation. And it's not a tax. He can, he can get away, even though a lot of conservatives will insist that this is a gas tax. We, we just saw this week the Mass Fiscal Alliance handing out all those mugs all over the statehouse, TCI's attacks. Exactly. Uh, But while the legislature is actually looking at the gas tax, the governor has some room uh, there to maneuver and and suggest that this is not a tax, but it is a way to generate significant money uh, for investments. And and he also doesn't have to go it alone if he can pull this coalition together, because if you do it on a regional basis and everyone is paying uh, the same amount, essentially, there's sort of a competitive playing field for businesses uh, and residents across the region. Now, we are starting to see this coalition perhaps start to splinter, and it'll be interesting to see how aggressively Governor Baker tries to bring governors back on board. Both the Republicans, uh, we we seem to already have lost Governor Sununu, and uh, Scott doesn't seem far behind. Lamont down in Connecticut is concerned, too. Yeah, and and that's a whole different situation. So this is kind of the the trick in putting these coalitions together. Uh, Governor Lamont in Connecticut is so busy right now trying to push through his own transportation proposal that includes tolling tolling on trucks. Uh, that uh, he's not really doesn't seem all that willing to spend the political capital on something like TCI. And um, it, it is supposed to be a multi-state pact. Um, Katie Thea Harity has said it uh, it needs a critical mass of states to participate. What What is the threshold? How many states can drop out before it's ineffective? Yeah, that's the big question. Uh, Secretary Theo Harry said the last time I talked to her about this that they they didn't really know how many states they could afford to lose. When we talked to the governor about New Hampshire backing out, he seemed a bit dismissive almost of New Hampshire because of (laughs) its size and the amount of pollution that it contributes to the region as they're not being an essential player in this pact that if they were to leave, it could survive. I would think Vermont would probably be in the same bucket Uh, a smaller state with uh, fewer vehicles, probably not contributing as much to the regional pollution as uh, Massachusetts. Uh, But I I also think Massachusetts doesn't want to become an island here where every state on its borders is not part of this pact and they are uh, in it. Sure. Now, another longstanding priority of the governor's hydropower from Quebec uh, got a crucial green light this week. Uh, Colin, how how long is it looking until hydropower from up north is flowing down into the Massachusetts and New England grid. Well, it'll be uh, at least about three years before that, that power comes here, and it's it's still not a sure thing that it, it will uh, get here at all. That The project this week, the New England Clean Energy Connect project that has uh, cleared the Maine Land Use Planning Commission, which is the group of regulators that's in charge of um, overseeing all of the unorganized territories in Maine, 
This is a 145-mile uh, transmission project that is going to carve a path through Maine's western woods, uh, but it did get the okay from the uh, land use regulators this week that it does meet uh, the state's land use standards uh, and now can go before the state's Department of Environmental Protection for one last state permit. Hmm. Um Interesting. And as, as far as I, I know you were doing kind of double duty this week on uh, long term planning for clean energy sources. Um, and, and you were saying to me that it's it's been almost four years. Yeah, it's been four years since the um, the state's clean energy uh, law was passed and signed by the governor, uh, which was a combination of hydropower from Quebec and uh, wind power from offshore developments. Uh, the governor signed that in August of 2016. And since then, uh, there have been three projects that have been uh, sort of launched, or there are now three projects. Uh, there are now three projects that stand to fulfill that 2016 law, uh, but none of them have exactly had a, a, an easy path to uh, the point that they are each at now. Yeah, none of this has gone as we would have expected four years ago. The first is the Vineyard Wind uh, offshore wind project, uh, which. Uh, was procured and, and was humming along uh, sort of the way we would have expected. And then uh, last summer, the Trump administration sort of threw the brakes on uh, all offshore wind projects, uh, even though Vineyard is the, the one that's furthest along and stands to be the first uh, utility-scale uh, wind farm in the country. Uh, the White House threw the brakes on uh, offshore wind up and down the East Coast, so that project is now waiting to get its final go-ahead uh, from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Uh, the hydro procurement, which is now uh, hopefully going to be fulfilled through the New England Clean Energy Connect project, was first uh, supposed to be delivered through the Northern Pass project, which would have brought the energy down through the White Mountains in New Hampshire. That project couldn't clear the regulatory hurdles uh, in the Granite State, so uh, Massachusetts officials and utility executives decided to switch gears and go with this project through Maine. Uh, and now they're slightly behind their own projections for uh, when this project would break ground. When I spoke with officials from Avangrid, the parent company of Central Maine Power, uh, they had expected this project to break ground in very late 2019. Now they're expecting uh, instead to break ground in the second quarter of 2020, uh, though they say they're planned to be operational uh, by the end of 2022, is still on track. And today we're waiting to get the power purchase agreements, the uh, contracts for the state's second wind farm, the Mayflower Wind Project. Uh, haven't Those haven't uh, been filed just yet, but we're hoping to get those today. Well, speaking of wrinkles in all this stuff, Colin, another wrinkle this week uh, came from commercial fishermen over proposed travel lanes between uh, the offshore, uh, planned offshore turbines. Um, how much a how much of a difference is there between what their group wants to see uh, to best aid their purposes out there and uh, what the wind developers want? It's a, it's a pretty good difference. Um, this is e Even though wind developments are, are sort of on pause right now, uh, the tension between the fishing community uh, and developers is, of course, uh, still present. So that's uh, sort of where things are. And, and right now they're haggling over how all of these um, hundreds of turbines that are eventually expected to be uh, south of Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket, uh, how they should be laid out. The developers back in November proposed a uniform grid across all of their lease areas so that it would um, be predictable 
no, whether you were in the Vineyard Wind lease area, the Mayflower Wind lease area, and on and on. Um, they proposed a what they're calling a one-by-one grid, which means the turbines would be spaced one nautical mile apart in east-west rows and north-south columns. They say that that would be enough uh, for uh, commercial fishing uh, fleets to be able to maneuver as they would need to. And the Responsible Offshore Development Alliance, which represents commercial fishing interests, uh, this week said that, no, they, they don't really like the developer's proposal. <laughs> it's not enough room. And instead of this one-by-one grid, they want that one-by-one grid, but with the addition of uh, six extra travel lanes in various directions, each one of these travel lanes being four nautical miles apart. And the developers said simply, look, the proposal we've already made for the one-by-one grid is already going to limit how much clean energy we can produce, and uh, including these designated travel lanes will even further limit how much clean energy we can produce. Gee, all right. So how, how much of a stumbling block would this be? Uh, well, the it's going to be up to the Coast Guard and the uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to uh, ultimately decide how these turbines should be laid out. Um, and, of course, we now know where each side stands. Looking ahead to next week, uh, as of this taping, we don't know the schedule yet for the House of Representatives, but... Um, we do know that the Senate has queued up some bills for a formal session next week as they really are preparing for their first substantive session of 2020. That's going to be two children-centric bills dealing with sex ed in public schools and school breakfast programs. So uh, that's on the horizon, and we'll have that and a lot more to talk about next week. Uh, thanks to you guys, Colin, Matt, and Katie, and have a good weekend. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.